Father, we spent a lot of time in our service today uh, praying to you. Uh, Lucas has led us in prayer, Mark has led us in prayer, and now we're coming to you again, because we can't come to you too often uh, when it comes to this thing called praying. And so God, as we're gathered here, as the local church, as its expression known as Scottsdale Bible Church, uh, we want to lift up to you our nation. Uh, Lord, this is a time where we focus on those who have given their lives in sacrifice or served in sacrifice for our nation. And so, Father, as we have so many here who have served in the military and the different arms of the military, we thank you, God, for their service and for all that they have done in serving you through our country. And God, as there is a new season in our country right now uh, with Barack Obama and Joe Biden being elected that will take uh, place real shortly here in the next couple of months, we do pray, God, uh, wisdom and righteousness and your guidance upon these men. Uh, Father, we pray that they would lead, as, as was told of King David in the Old Testament, with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. And so, God, we would pray your blessing upon them. And God, we would pray for us as a church that we would show incredible integrity and truthfulness and love as we also move on in this country of ours. We pray, God, that evangelism indeed would happen in and through all that you are up to uh, in our land. And so, God, as we turn to your word now, we do pray for um, wisdom and insight. May we understand it rightly, especially this very difficult passage that we're looking at here this morning. And if there's anything that I'm going to say that is not of your word or your truth, I pray, God, that it would fall on deaf ears. Only those things which are ultimately of your mind and heart, I pray, would get through. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. The whole church says together, amen. Well, the apostle Peter says something very unique. At the end of his second letter to us, look up here on the screen, he says in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 16 this, and I quote, he says, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, and there are some things that he writes that are hard to understand. So Paul, he's saying, also wrote to you guys, and the things that he writes are not always that easy to understand. And we don't know if Paul ever read these words in 2 Peter. We kind of doubt it, given the where and when this letter was originally sent, but if he had... And if he had also already read Peter's first letter, the one that we're studying this fall here at Scottsdale Bible, I gotta believe that Paul would have said, well, that's the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, I write things that are hard to understand. Have you ever read your own words, Peter, like toward the end of the third chapter of your first letter? It makes my stuff look like Sesame Street. I think Paul would have said something similar to that. And the reason is obvious. I mean, Paul did write some things that were hard to understand. I mean, in Romans, he writes about some difficult theology. He wrote about some hard moral lessons in Corinthians and even some tough-to-reconcile eschatology in Thessalonians. But what Paul writes doesn't even come close to the confusing complexity that we find before us in this passage today in 1 Peter 3. I mean, the passage today that we're going to look at in 1 Peter 3, I promise you, is the kind of passage that most of you, having probably read it before, just sort of said, I don't get it, and moved on. Or, if you did get it and tried to look at it more closely, you ended up by responding by saying, Jesus, Noah, baptism, I don't get it. And that's the name of today's message. And so let's read this passage together, okay? And uh, what do we do when we read God's passage formally in the church? You guys remember from last week? We stand. Amen. All right, so let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'm reading for 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. We're going to put it up here on the screen or follow along in your own Bibles. And you're going to see exactly what I mean about a tough passage. 
He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Please have a seat. And so obviously, this passage here starts off pretty straightforward, right? I mean, as we're going to see in a minute, this whole idea of Christ dying for our sins, substitutionary atonement and stuff like that, though we've had to plumb the depths of that for the last 2,000 years, we've got a pretty good handle, as we're going to see, on what that's about. But then seemingly, coming out of nowhere, Peter says Jesus heads down to hell, we think, says something to some spirits in prison who have been there since the days of Noah, like all the way back in Genesis 6, and they're there because they didn't listen to God during the time when he flooded the whole earth and only Noah and his family, there were eight of them, were saved from the water. And speaking of water, Peter says, this water is kind of like baptism, which now saves you, that's a loaded statement, not by the washing of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. And again, at this point, and I've done this before, you put the Bible down and you say, Jesus, Noah, baptism, what do any of these have to do with each other? What's next? And then you move on to chapter 4 and he talks about sin and you say, okay, I kind of get that. And, and then you finish the book of 1 Peter. But I don't want to do that this morning. I want us to park in front of these pa this passage for the rest of our time today and try to make some sense, try to get some understanding theologically and then practically as to what Peter is saying to you and me here today. Because I think there's some life in these words here. Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining. Three things that I believe build one upon another that Peter is outlining here. And before I share these with you, let me make one huge big caveat. You ready for this? And that is that I do not pretend to have all the answers to the complexities of this passage. Not at all. In other words, there are still many issues and questions, even after I'm going to share with you today, of what Peter is saying here and yet, i got to tell you, I'm okay with that. And the reason that I'm okay with that is, get this, and this might blow your mind, and that is because 2,000 years of theological inquiry into this passage have not yielded any universal agreement at all as to what Peter is saying here. Can you laugh a little bit at that? I mean, some of the greatest minds in history, we're talking Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, as well as some of the best minds that are out there today. Guys like R.T. France and Wayne Grudem and Peter Davids have all plumbed the depths of these words here, and they've come up with about four or five different views on what might be happening here, and they're all massively divergent. Like there's almost no agreement in them. And so I, as just a pastor of a church and all that, am very much okay with the fact that there are very different views. I'm going to give you mine, but my point is just to kind of share with you some of the options with this passage here, maybe help you make your own determination, and even show you how I think there is a main point here that we can all agree upon, okay? So here's the number one thing, or number one, the first thing that Peter is saying here, and this is pretty straightforward, this first thing. It's, it's the most easy thing to get out of Peter's three thoughts though I would submit to you this is the most encouraging, and that is that Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And that's the first thing Peter tells us here, 
is that Jesus did for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. So look again at verse 18 here. Peter starts off very clear and very profound. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, folks, to fully get what Peter is saying here, you have to realize that he is assuming three key things here about fallen human beings. In fact, if you do not realize what Peter is saying here about human beings, what he's assuming here, you will not understand what he's ultimately driving at. So look up here on the screen. Peter is assuming here, in this passage here, our sinful nature, which then leads to our spiritual death, that then results in our separation from God. Peter's assuming that here. So don't miss, he's assuming, beginning there, that the fact that all humanity is fallen, like not perfect, sinful from orientation right at birth, right? It's Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I would simply submit to you that just about every human being knows this intuitively, amen? I mean, I'm always marveled at our kids. I have three wonderful kids, and I remember when they were young, about two or three years old, they started to, to act out, and I remember thinking, where did they get that from? I mean, the only thing they've watched up to this point is Sesame Street and Barney. I've not allowed them to see Die Hard or Lethal Weapon or anything like that, and so they're not watching any of these Bruce Willis movies. All they've been exposed to is this purple bear and the Bible, and yet they're showing selfishness and not being other-centered and, and a nature that, that is going to be all about mine, mine, mine. You've got to ask yourself, where does that come from? And the Bible has an answer to this, and that is our sinful nature. You have it, I have it, our kids have it, and don't miss that Peter assumes it here, that we have a problem between us and God. And so he goes on to talk about that problem. He goes on, or he goes on to assume that problem, and that is that, that this sinful nature flows into a spiritual death and a separation from God. The fact that when God told Adam and Eve if, that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, and that he wasn't kidding. And so we all know that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, and they didn't choke on the spot or something like that, because it wasn't a physical death God was talking about. It was a spiritual death. And when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, and by the way, we've all eaten it, amen, at some point in our life, this led to a soul death, a separation from God getting kicked out of the garden in which now all humanity is lost and trying to find their way back home into a right relationship with God. And so this is what Peter is assuming here, our sinful nature leading to our spiritual death, leading to our separation from God, and now, and only now, are you ready to get what Peter is saying here in verse 18. Look up here on the screen. And that is that he says that our sinful nature was matched by Jesus' perfection, and that our spiritual death was responded to by Jesus' death, and that all of this, when you add it together, brings us to God. Isn't that awesome? And so he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, he begins by saying Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived perfectly God's will, the life that you and I were originally designed to live but couldn't live because of our sinful and fallen nature. He did. So now you see why I say he did something for us that you and I could not do for ourselves. In other words, living up to God's holy and perfect standard for humanity. As elsewhere would be said in the Bible, he became our righteousness. And then Peter says that Jesus further suffered for sins being put to death in the flesh. 
Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. Simply put, that in addition to meeting all the righteous requirements of God's holy law, Jesus then went to the cross, died a sinner's death, the death that you and I should have died because of our sin. He died and took our sins upon himself so that God's wrath would be abated and that his forgiveness would now be a reality. And the result of this appeased wrath and the full forgiveness was so that he might bring us to God, to quote Peter here. And that for all who would claim him as Savior and Lord, receive and believe, John would tell us, and accept him into our lives, we would now have eternal life and the hope of life this side of heaven as our sins are now forgiven and we are now in a vital relationship with God. So don't miss what Peter's saying. Jesus' perfection plus Jesus' death equals brings us to God. And that's why I say that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it changes everything. It does. As many of you know, I grew up in the uh, Midwest uh, in a little town called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And I don't know if you guys remember, for those of you who grew up in small towns, but there was a time when the newspaper was delivered by little guys who had a paper route. Do you all remember those days? It's not that way anymore. I don't know why, but, but that's the way it was in my day. And so when I was in fifth grade back in the 1970s, uh, I got a paper route delivering Ohio's largest newspaper called The Plain Dealer. And it was quite a job. Every morning I had to get up at 5 a.m., and walk across this small little town of ours to the other end of town where I would pick up 25 newspapers that had been dropped off by the plain dealer guy. I never met him, but he must have dropped them off. And I would take these 25 newspapers and I would distribute them on Cottage Street and Summit Street and Orange Street, which remember when they used to call streets like normal names like that? Anyways, but that's Cottage Street, Orange Street, and Summit Street. And I deliver 25 newspapers. And then on Sunday, I deliver 35 newspapers. And I did this every day for four years. I was a newspaper delivery boy. And my dad was a real stickler. He would not drive me like many parents seem to do today. No, he would not drive me on my paper out unless it dipped below zero. And my dad was a lawyer. And so he was a stickler for details. And if I called the weather and it was one degree, tough luck, kid, you're out there delivering newspapers. But on the odd day that it dipped below zero, he'd drive me on my paper out. And it was a great business for a little kid back growing up in the 70s because I learned a lot about business through this paper route. Because, you see, I bought each newspaper from the plain dealer for 11 cents, and I sold them for 15 cents. So I made four cents a newspaper. And then on Sunday, I really made out because I bought them for 37 cents, but sold them for 50 cents. And so here I was in fifth grade, already learning some of the fineries of small business. And if you add it all up, I was making about 10 bucks a week in the 1970s when in fifth grade. And that's pretty good back then. Until I discovered something that some of you discovered that can get you in a lot of trouble. And I learned this. And that is that, you see, I collect all this money for the plane dealer because I go collecting two nights a week. And all this money would come in, but not all of it was mine, right? I mean, a large portion of it was due to my creditors to the plane dealer. And once a month, the plane dealer guy would come by my house. His name was Mr. Galati, a big Italian guy. And he'd collect the money. I'm not kidding. Big like right in the days of the Godfather. And this big Italian guy would come by and he'd collect the money that I owed him for that month. And sure enough, that first year, I made sure that I doled out all the money that was due him and then what was ever left over, again, about 10 bucks a week, was mine. And once a month, this transaction would take place. 
But I'll never forget when about sixth grade rolled around, I realized that if there was something I really wanted, that what I could do was kind of borrow from all that money. See where this is going? All that money that I'd collected ahead, get what I want, but just make sure that I don't spend more the next week or the week after. It was like the early days of credit. And I realized I could do that. And yet, as you can imagine, it wasn't too long until I got in trouble. And I'll never forget the first time Mr. Galati came by and I didn't have enough money to give him. In fact, I'd fallen way short by buying volumes of bazooka bubblegum or something like that that you buy in sixth grade. And so I, I did what all of us, some of us do, I guess, when you sin, and that's that I decided to sin again. And so I lied to him. And I told him that I just didn't do enough collecting that month, and so the money was there, but I just didn't have it in my possession. And again, this big Godfather guy looked at me and, and he said, well, Jamie, he said, I'm going to be back next month and you can't be short. You got to have all the money you owe me. And wouldn't you know that next month I did it again. I did it again. Dumb sixth grader. And now I was over $200 short for the plane dealer guy. And I was in a panic. And so what do you do when you're in sixth grade and you're in a panic? You go to who? dad, right? So I went down to my dad's office uh, in the basement there. He's got this big lawyer desk, and I sat down, and I just pleaded my case. Tears and everything. I confessed it all. Stealing the money, lying, covering up, all this stuff. stuff. Mr. Galati, the godfather, coming over to get the money, and I just said, Dad, I don't know what to do. And I'll never forget, my dad just didn't say a word. He just reached into his desk drawer, and he pulled out his checkbook. And he said, how much do you owe? And I said, it's 200 some odd dollars. And so he wrote him out for the full amount that I owed, and he ripped it off his checkbook, and he gave it to me. And I was so grateful, and I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I, I promise you that I will pay this money back. And he looked at me, and he said, no, you won't. He said, the reason you won't is because it will take you almost a year to save up money like this, and by then you're going to be totally discouraged. You're just going to quit your paper route. He said, why don't we call this a starting over check and don't do it again. And I went up and paid the plane dealer guy. That was one of the first experiences that I can ever remember in my life where somebody did such an incredible grace move that motivated me to not mess up again. In fact, I went on from that point to have that paper out three more years and only got in trouble one more time. That's not too bad <laughs> over the next three years. And, and again, my dad helped me out there too. What did my dad do there? He did something for me, even if he wanted me to pay it back, that I could not do for myself. If you can understand that, if you have any type of experience this side of heaven in which something like that has happened to you, blow it up 2,000% and you're going to start to get a little taste of what Jesus did for you. Because what Peter is telling us here is that we had a sin problem. We owed a debt that we could not pay. And it was a cosmic, eternal debt and Jesus came, and kind of like my father writing that check, he wrote the check. He lived the life. He paid the penalty that we should have paid doing something for us that we could have never done for ourselves. And then he said, follow me. Follow me the rest of the days of your life. Receive that check. And now you are mine, and I am yours. It's an amazing truth that Peter is telling us here. It's a truth that changes everything. Now, believe it or not, that's the easy thing to understand when it comes to what Peter is telling us here. And yet it's probably the most important thing as well, so we should be thankful that it's fairly easy to get. Amen? And as we all know, Peter, however, goes on to talk about what Jesus did at this point when he died and was resurrected. And so look again at verses 19 to 20. This is where the tough part comes in to understand at least. 
says in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, folks, when you look closely at this passage, there are three turnkey questions that you and I should ask that might just help us understand what Peter's getting at here. Look up here on the screen, and that is, who specifically are these prisons, spirits in prison? What did Christ proclaim to them? And when did Christ do this? Who, what, and when are the three questions that if we can somehow get some answers to, might help us make sense of what is happening here. And as I suggested earlier, there's been about four or five major views that have emerged over the years, and I'm going to share them with you very quickly so that you can kind of get a bird's eye view of what people have said to try to answer these three questions. So here's view number one. Some say that the spirits in prison here are the Old Testament faithful saints who were in limbo during Christ's day, waiting for Christ to be revealed. And so after his resurrection, he went and preached to them the gospel so that they might believe and be ushered into heaven with Christ. This was a view of John Calvin, the famous 16th century reformer, and in various other forms, it's held by many today. And so the who are the Old Testament saints who died and now are in limbo. The what is that Christ proclaimed the gospel to them so that they could believe and enter heaven. And the when is that he did this after his resurrection, or some say no, it was between his death and resurrection, but either way he did it right around that time. And though I greatly respect John Calvin and others who hold this view, there are some significant problems with this view, in my opinion. One, it says in our text that these spirits in prison were disobedient, right? That's probably the most obvious problem. I mean, how could these be Old Testament faithful saints who are waiting to receive glory, and it describes them as disobedient? I, I don't think that really fits here. And then secondly, it says that they existed during the days of Noah. Like, not during all the days of the Old Testament, but just Noah's day. And three, the sense is, is that whatever Christ preached to them was probably not a very positive thing. That's going to be key for our understanding of this passage here. In other words, it doesn't sound, because they were disobedient and only Noah was saved, that what he was preaching to them was like a real positive thing. So the good news it doesn't seem like was what he was talking to them about. So I don't think that's what this is saying. It is a viable option. I'm giving you the real big cliff, cliff notes here version, but I, I don't think this is it. Now, second major view people have come up with over the years is this, that sometime between Jesus' death and resurrection, he went down into hell and preached to human spirits who died in Noah's day, and depending on your variation of this view, either offered them a second chance to receive the gospel or just preached judgment to them. And this has been a popular view for centuries now. In fact, almost every generation since Jesus' day in some variation has seen this view. And so the who is, is that these spirits are human spirits who didn't listen to Noah and died during the flood. The what is that Christ either gave them a second chance or preached condemnation to them. And the when is that he did this during that three-day interval between his death and resurrection. And yet, as you can imagine, there's some formidable problems with this view as well. And the first and the most difficult is when Peter says that Jesus preached to spirits in prison. Now, this is going to be key for our understanding. That word spirits here is the Greek word pneuma, and it appears all the time throughout the New Testament. But get this, it almost all, or most of the time, it tends to refer to non-human spirits. 
So for instance, Jesus used this word to talk about demons all the time in the Gospels, right? And, and, and so this idea of a spirit many times refers to non-human spirits, but what most commentators point out is that when it is used of dead humans who have died, it's almost always qualified as such. And so in Hebrews 12.23, you can look it up later, Hebrews 12.23, it does talk about dead humans as spirits, but it's very clear in the text and qualified as such. Many other instances, like Ephesians 2.2 and many others, when it's no qualification, it's referring to non-human spirits, to the spiritual realm. So it's hard to see spirits here as referring to human spirits. And secondly, from this view, we know from the Scriptures that God has said that each of us have to choose to be either for Christ or against Christ this side of heaven, and whatever our choice is, is going to determine our eternal destiny. And so there can't be any chance that this is talking about a second chance here, because that would not collate at all with any of the other scriptures. And when some say, well, maybe it's just talking about judgment, the question then becomes, well, how do we make sense of that? I mean, why would Jesus go preach judgment to people who died in the days of Noah and to no one else. It just doesn't seem to make much sense. And so again, it's a viable view, at least in its non-second chance form, but not one that I believe best fits the scriptural evidence. And so a third view that some have posited is that the spirits referred to here are ones, now listen close, who are now, because it says now in prison, as all who rejected God are after they die, but that when it says that Christ went and preached to them, it refers to when they were on this earth, when God preached through Noah thousands of years earlier. Do you see what they're saying there? So the who are the spirits now in prison, but were once human beings while on this earth. The what is that Christ preached through Noah to them in Noah's day, warning them about the coming flood. And the when is obviously thousands of years earlier when Noah walked this earth. And though this isn't a super popular view today, it has been declared <clears throat> by our own Wayne Grudem from Phoenix Seminary and an elder here at Scottsdale Bible Church, and it does hold the historic uh, acclamation by guys like Augustine and Aquinas, so Wayne's in some good company there. And all I can say is that I am so glad that Wayne is hunting this weekend in southern Kansas and isn't here to hear me respectfully disagree with him on this. And so I really lucked out, and I'm just asking all of you not to tell him, all right? So do you think there's any chance that 4,500 people aren't going to tell him? No, probably isn't. I know some of you know him. You can't wait. You're tickled pink right now. Tomorrow you're going to email him. Guess what? Jamie disagreed with you. You're losers. Anyways, because um, <laughs> I'm telling you, he's going to make mincemeat of me. He's a lot smarter than I am. And, uh, but, but again, seriously, here's the reason I don't opt for this view. And, that, and that's that, one, we all know that the best way to take the Scriptures in is, is in its plain reading of the text. And the plain reading of the text here does not seem to suggest that these spirits um, occurred or that the preaching occurred during the time of, of Noah. I just don't think that that is at all what, what Peter is getting at here. Just doesn't, it's not the plain reading. You really have to, to do some magical or some exegetical work to get to that point. And Wayne actually does a great job of arguing his case. And then also, probably even more important, however, is that I've already stated, I tend to fall inside that spirits here, because of how it's used in the New Testament over and over again, almost surely is referring to non-human spirits, to the spiritual realm. And so again, I, I don't think that would mean the people living in Noah's day. And so that only leaves one view. 
the view that I agree with. Ironically, we've saved that for last. So, uh, simply put, it's this, that after Christ died, or after his resurrection, but before his ascension, he went into hell and proclaimed victory over death and triumph over sin, now listen close, to the fallen angels who sinned while on this earth just before the flood in Genesis 6. And some of you are saying, what? Well, let me read it for you. Let me read it for you. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 3, and, and you tell me if this might not be what it's getting at. Again, this occurs just before Noah and the flood. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Pause there. So mankind, Cain and Abel and all of them, are, are now having daughters born to them. Well, not Abel. Anyways, that's another story. So they're now having daughters born to them. And, uh, and it says that these sons of God were attracted to these daughters. So who are these sons of God? I mean, they can't be human beings because it just says, distinguishes them between man. And so what the Jewish theologians throughout the whole history before Jesus and what many theologians since Jesus have posited is that this has to be referring to angelic beings. And we know, as you'll see in a minute, that angelic beings sometimes appear on earth. So, so that's what history has always interpreted this passage, or by and large, to be saying. So continue on. It says, And they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh and his days shall now be 120 years. And then it goes on to talk about God's displeasure with all of this that eventually led to the flood. And so, folks, what many have suggested over the years is that, as I've said, these sons of God were angelic beings who inhabited the earth in those very early days of creation. And again, we know from Hebrews 13, 2, that angels many times do appear on this earth as, as vis visiting messengers. Plus, you've all seen It's a Wonderful Life with Clarence and things like that. And so, these sons of God obviously displeased God. They did not obey, as our text says, and so listen close. What Peter is telling us is that Christ went to hell and proclaimed victory and triumph, which is what his death and resurrection were all about, to these fallen spirits in the spiritual realm. And this view meshes well with the original count of Genesis 6. It seemingly honors the intent of the New Testament usages of spirits, meaning non-human spirits. And it seems to as well give a cogent reason as to what Christ actually proclaimed to them, right? Triumph and victory to the spiritual realm. It's simply the view that my mind makes the most sense, fits the scriptures as a whole the best, and it's a view that I take. Now listen very closely, folks. Whether you get any of this or not, whether your head is swimming right now or not, as mine has been the last few weeks as I've been trying to understand all of this, at the end of the day, we simply have to ask ourselves, what's the point? I mean, in any or all of these views, what is Peter trying to get at? And here it is. Let's put this all together. This is point two in your outline. And really the primary message that Peter is trying to get across, no matter which view you might land on, save for the second chance view, which is obviously not correct, and that is that Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Amen? Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Folks, listen, I think that no matter which view you take here, there is one thing that all of them agree on, namely the fact that Peter is simply trying to tell us that Jesus' death and, death and resurrection was one big victory, like a Super Bowl victory, over sin and death. 
And so whether you think he's preaching to Old Testament saints caught in limbo or to those who died in Noah's day to do their disobedience or through Noah to those who Noah was trying to change or to fallen angels who have already chosen their eternal destiny, it's all the same. Peter was trying to tell us that there was a cosmic victory that occurred when Christ went to the cross and rose again. That something that hadn't happened up to that point in historical time and since then hasn't happened, happened. Something that we needed done to deal with our sin problem happened. And Jesus is proclaiming victory over death and sin in the spiritual realm. That's what Peter is saying to us. Victory over sin and death, don't miss this, is now ours. And though we don't have time to go into this in any detail today, please realize that the implications of this victory to you and to me today are vast beyond measure and profound beyond imagination. And we talk about it all the time here at our church. And so let me ask you, do you find yourself caught in a sin that you can't seem to lick? Listen, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Peter's going to talk about that just next in chapter 4. Are you in a marriage that seems to be dead and has no more life? Listen, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Peter just got done talking to us about marriage. Finances careening out of control, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Depression and anxiety got a stranglehold on your emotions. Let's say it together. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Spiritual doubt keeps creeping in and robs you of joy. Let's say it. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Or how about this one? Others keep abandoning you and hurting you. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. And the list is endless. Every problem that we deal with this side of heaven, God wants to touch in some way. As we saw last week, He wants to be front and center in our lives, Lord and Savior of everything that our life is about. And so what Peter is telling us here is take heart. Because guess what? He preached victory to the spiritual realm. He preached victory to all the things behind the scenes. And that means there's victory for you now. I love how Peter's going to say it when we study 2 Peter next spring in 09. Let me give you a taste of this. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Pause right there. His divine power. His divine power given us what? Just a few things that we need to live life this side of heaven? No. All things that pertain to what? Just your spiritual life? No. Life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence which he has granted us to us by his very great and precious promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire man that changes everything i mean for those of the think that god is a sunday god only or that somehow i can't seem to walk with god monday through saturday throughout the week hogwash he says, I am your Lord, I am your Savior, I want to be involved in every aspect of your life. I triumphed over sin and death, and now I've given you everything you need to live life this side of heaven. If you live life on my terms, if you learn to walk with me, if you honor me in your word, if you'll engage other Christians, and there's lots of things he asks us to do, we all know that, in order to walk with him and to love him and to know him. But make no mistake, he triumphed, that's the foundation of it all, and it changes everything for you and for me. Now we're fast running out of time. In fact, we're just about out. But I want to wrap up our time together this morning by sharing with you the last thought that God gives us here through Peter. This is the third thing 
that he shares with us as he kind of bounces all around in these five very short verses. And so here it is. And this is a great note to end on, and that is that water baptism cements and solidifies your salvation. Water baptism cements and solidifies your salvation. Look how he wraps up this section in verses 21 and 22. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And now, folks, again, this is a loaded passage in which at first glance it seems to suggest some teachings about baptism that, that go against some of the other parts of Scripture. And so just suffice it to say that the logic and flow of thought that Peter's getting at here goes something like this. That as he thinks about the water that Noah and his family made it safely through, this all of a sudden reminds him of the water that we're baptized with as a follower of Jesus. So there is a link here. He's talking about water, and he goes, oh yeah, and all of a sudden the water and the salvation I'm talking about and he says here, and here's the key phrase that you need to, to have in your arsenal to understand this, that this water symbolizes our salvation. He doesn't actually ever say that word symbolize, but when he says here, now don't miss this, that, that it's, he's not talking about water that removes dirt from the body, which would be a literal sense, but a water that gives us the pledge of a good conscience. He's obviously saying I'm not speaking literally here about water. I'm speaking spiritually or symbolically about what these baptismal waters do in your soul. Do you see that there? And so when he says that it saves you here, he's not saying that baptism literally saves you, but that the, what baptism symbolizes or demarks in our lives is what saves us. And so what does baptism symbolize? Well, Romans 6 is pretty clear. And that is that when we go down in the water, it's symbolizing Christ's death on a cross for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, it symbolizes Christ's resurrection that has given us new life. And I believe Peter's saying the same thing here. That this water is not just washing dirt from your body, but it's a pledge, an appeal of a good conscience before God as you've trusted Christ for eternal life and become a follower of him. And now when you go in that water, it's a powerful, powerful symbol of your death, of Christ's death and resurrection, and of your belief and following of Him. And so, folks, if you see nothing else in these closing verses of chapter 3 here, please see this, and that is that water baptism as a, as a follower and believer in Christ is a powerful and indispensable act of public testimony and obedience to Him. In fact, they believe this so strongly in New Testament times. You know what the pattern was? Now, don't miss this. And that is that the moment somebody believed in Christ, what did they do? They got baptized, right? I mean, check it out for yourself. It's like in Acts 2, 3,000 people get saved, immediately get baptized. Like, let's have a baptism party right now. And then all of a sudden you move on in Acts, I think it's Acts 8, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, gets saved through Peter's testimony. And uh, what do they do? Can they get baptized right here, right now in the river? And then skip forward to Acts 16, and you got the Philippian jailer who all of a sudden gets saved, he and his family. And, and what do they do? We're going to baptize them immediately. Are you starting to see a pattern here? And the reason that that's such a great challenge to you and me, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, is that you know what the pattern is in America, however? Now let's have some fun with this. And that is that you get saved, you come to believe in Christ, and then you wait 15 years. Have you ever noticed this? And, until you're ready. I can't tell you how many times I'm not ready yet to get baptized. And then after 15 years, you get baptized. And so again, I don't mean to embarrass some of you, but how many times have we been watching a baptism and somebody says, yeah, I walked the aisle in 1972 at a Billy Graham crusade and now I'm finally getting baptized. You're going, dude, it's year like 2008. Like, what do you mean you're getting baptized now? 
And, and again, I'm not trying to prohibit some of you from getting baptized that need to get baptized because you need to bite the bullet and do it. But the pattern that the Scriptures gives us is that you believe and you get baptized. And so, quite frankly, I remember the day that I became a Christian, 1981, I didn't get baptized for the next year because I was ignorant to all of this. And then my pastor in Cleveland, Ludd, and I were meeting one day, and he goes, you know, well, Jamie, he's got this, you know, well, Jamie voice, you know, and he goes, well, Jamie, have you been you know, washed in the waters of baptism yet? I'm like, what are you talking about, you know? And he showed me the scriptures. I thought, my gosh, I'm a year late. I better get in the waters of baptism. And this is kind of a funny story. This is a true story. My dad, as you guys know, is not an evangelical Christian. So I, got, I got baptized as a baby in this little American Baptist church we were going to. And then I got baptized when I was 13 years old in this little United Church of Christ we were going to. But I, I didn't believe in Christ. I just was in love with Amy Douglas. And so she was in the class. And <laughs> I thought, you know, let's join the confirmation class. And so I joined it and got baptized. And, and then I, I got saved when I was 17 years old. You know, I mean, radical, accepted Christ, Paul on the road to Damascus, that type of thing. And so I never forget the day that I came home when I was 18. I said to my dad, he's reading the newspaper, I said, Dad, I'm getting baptized. He didn't even look down. He just said, is this it? <laughs> and uh, I was like, yes, this is it. It's going to stay. And it did. And I got baptized when I was 18 years old, a Peter type of baptism. And it was so powerful. It was such, it just solidified my faith in Christ. And so here's the deal for some of you. Man, you've waited too long as it is, right? I mean, are you a believer in Christ? Have you come to follow him? If you have and you've not been baptized yet as an adult believer, you need to be baptized. The pattern Acts tells us this. Peter's telling us this. It's part of your, your pledge, your appeal of a good conscience before God, of following him in obedience and giving public testimony to your faith. And so if that interests any of you, or if you're maybe even feeling a little convicted about that, I'd encourage you to call our church office and inquire about baptism. I know we, we pastors would be happy to meet with you and answer any questions you have. And uh, we're actually doing a baptismal um, service next weekend. We're having some people get baptized in our service next weekend. And so maybe not next weekend for you, but let's, let's get it on the books so that you can give public testimony to your faith, all right? And uh, I promise you it'll be a celebratory thing. So, five verses, and boy, is it ever packed with meat, huh? Uh, Christ did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. And just to put it very simply, baptism matters. It solidifies and cements your salvation. People who tell me that the Bible is boring and irrelevant haven't read the book, amen? It is truth to our lives. I hope you're filled with hope and ready for the week ahead because there's nothing this earth can throw you that God cannot conquer. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for all that you've given us in our lives. And as Ephesians 1.3 says, for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And God is true. We're blessed beyond measure. And I'm not talking the tangible physical things per se, but uh, all the stuff that you've given us so that we might live a life here that's pleasing to you spiritually and relationally. And so, Father, I pray that there are some of us here today that needed to be, have a stiff reminder, if not an introduction, to this idea of substitutionary atonement that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And, Father, there's others here, too, that might need to be reminded, I think all of us do, that you've triumphed over sin and death. And so there's no sin or death we can experience this side of heaven uh, that can at all touch us. As Jesus said, they can touch the body. They can't touch the soul. Or as our friend last week reminded us through Bruce that it's a win-win situation when it comes to anything that could happen to us this side of heaven. And Father, for others of us too, maybe remind us today that baptism does matter. Maybe look at joy upon our, our own baptisms that we've done and 
Father, may even um, you convict some of us that it's time to enter those waters. Uh, Father, no matter what, would you encourage us today that we are yours and that if we've come to follow your son Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we go now greatly encouraged, knowing that you're with us and that you never leave us. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all of us say together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.